Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 44, Osman. First, as always, thanks to our newest Patreon supporter, Constantine. Now, given his name, he seems like a wonderful person to be supporting the podcast. But, uh, you know, we always have to be a little bit skeptical of the, the Byzantine overtones. So we'll, we'll see how good of a supporter Constantine is. But oh, joking aside, thanks a lot, Constantine, for supporting the show. All right. So we left off last time with Tsar Theodor Svetoslav finally consolidating his control over Bulgaria. And the state seems like it's in better shape than it's been for decades. Bulgaria is more centralized and at peace. Though that centralization is made, has made uh, the Tsar plenty of enemies amongst the boyars who resisted being kept on such a tight leash in Turnoval. But we've been here before. Often, it seemed that a new, young, powerful Tsar is taking the throne, ready to thrust Bulgaria into a new golden age, only to be dashed. So, that's kind of the open question about the other Svetoslav. You know, is he going to be a new Simeon? Or is he going to be another Konstantin Tich Asen? In 1302, and in the previous two years, Tsar Theodore had managed to actually more or less crush all of his enemies. By 1303, yet another one was gone. Ivanasen III, the last of his portion of the Asen dynasty, finally died in exile in Anatolia. He was about 44 years old, and, well, technically. Uh, but, now, technically, Ivanasen III was actually Tsar Theodore's uncle, so this is an interesting uh, aspect here. But, well, it's doubtful that Tsar shed any tears for Ivanasen III because he had been branded a Byzantine pretender to the throne, a sort of stooge of the Byzantine Empire. And so he had few, if any, friends left in Bulgaria. So with his passing, the throne became even more secure. Another reminder here that you should really go to the website, bghistorypodcast.com, to look at the Asen family tree. Because, as I've said before, all of this is just way too complicated to figure out who's related to who and how without that family tree. So go check it out. There's always maps and things for each uh, episode as well. So it's worth looking. So that same year, 1302, feeling confident of his position, Tsar Theodore decided that it was time to go on the offensive against the Byzantines to recover all the Thracian lands that had been lost in the chaos surrounding the uprising of Ivailo. So, throughout 1303 and 1304, Theodore managed to take Yambol, Nesebr, Pomorie, Suzopol, and Achtopol. Oddly enough, I was in almost all of those places this weekend. Uh, but, yeah, these are names familiar to anyone who enjoys a holiday at the Black Sea, as I do. But they're also vital fortresses and ports. And they're territories that are pretty valuable to Bulgaria, actually. In 1304, the Byzantines mounted a serious counterattack under the command of Michael IX Palaiologos. I'm always a little iffy on these Greek pronunciations, but his father is the Emperor Andronicus II, and Michael had recently been crowned co-emperor. Uh, really, I'm just going to skip his family name and call him Michael IX. He's co-emperor. 
So the Byzantines are counterattacking. You know, the Bulgarians took all this territory on the Black Sea and in Thrace, the Byzantines won it back. The two armies met at the Scafida River. Now, initially, the Byzantines pressed the Bulgarians to the north bank, with the Bulgarians retreating across a bridge over the river. And as the Byzantines pursued them with vigor, the Byzantines began to overcrowd that small bridge. Then, just at the right moment, it collapsed, the result of Bulgarian sabotage before the battle. In the ensuing chaos, as Byzantine soldiers drowned in the deep waters of the river, the Bulgarians regained the offensive and heavily defeated the Byzantine army. The young co-emperor was forced to flee in humiliation, though he was not captured. After this battle, the Byzantines were unwilling to surrender, and Theodore was unable to force an end to the war, in spite of his victory. Thus, the war dragged on, year after year, with each side conducting raids against the other, but unable to finish the job. Around 1305, Eltimir changed sides, rebelling against Tornavol on behalf of the Byzantine Empire, though he was quickly defeated by Theodore. Though we have no records of his death, it's our best guess that Eltimir was actually killed around this time, and so that's the end of yet another character in our story. Theodor Svetislav tried several times to convince Byzantine mercenaries, angry at not being paid by the cash-strapped emperor, to join his side. But while he enjoyed some small successes, these efforts never amounted to very much. Now, one of those groups was a company of mercenaries from Catalonia. Now, their leader was killed at a dinner with the emperor because of a blood feud with the leader of another mer- group of mercenaries, Point is, if you hire a bunch of bloodthirsty mercenaries, they're going to start causing problems for you, for themselves, for each other. This is just an example of that. But as a result of this murder, the Catalans went on what you could politely call a rampage. They started plundering all over Thrace. They defeated a Byzantine army sent to to destroy them, and they nearly captured the co-emperor Michael IX. They even managed to sack a monastery, the monastery, at Mount Athos, and set up a slave market in Gallipoli. They took so many slaves as they sort of plundered around Greece and bits of Anatolia and Thrace, and they even made an attempt to take Thessalonica, which is pretty impressive. Again, this is the second biggest city in the entire Byzantine Empire, and this group of rampaging mercenaries made a serious attempt to take it, though they failed. Point is, as I just mentioned, the mercenary game is a dangerous one for the Byzantines. Things can go bad very, very fast. But, as you know, the fact that the Byzantines have been slowly losing ground in Anatolia meant that, has meant that they've really have lost their huge source of manpower. You know, Anatolia is a big place, lots of farmers, lots of people that can be recruited into the army. And so this is one of these fundamental changes. You know, Broadly speaking, we associate Byzantium with treachery and mercenaries and things like this. And this is one of those reasons, right? When the Byzantine Empire starts to shrink, they have Constantinople, which gives them a lot of money. It's a very wealthy city, but they don't have all those wealthy lands off in Anatolia and other parts of, uh, of the Balkans. Pardon if you can hear that uh, ambulance. So they lose all that manpower but they have money and so they pretty much have to turn to mercenaries. And again, as we're going to see Many times in our story, mercenaries are very, very tricky things to handle. But anyways, 
1307, with the Byzantines facing their own military troubles elsewhere, they finally decided to settle for peace with the Bulgarians. Tsar Theodor Svetoslav married Theodora, the granddaughter of Emperor Andronicus II and the daughter of Michael, the man he had so recently defeated in battle. But the marriage did bring peace, and it also brought a Byzantine recognition of Theodore's newly regained ter territories in Thrace. Uh, again, you can find maps of both Theodore's campaigns, as well as the full territory that Bulgaria controlled at the time, on the website. Now, Bulgaria kind of settled into more peaceful times. Taking Black Sea ports, uh, the, so they saw the end of Tatar raids, they saw peace with their neighbors, and all this meant increased trade, increased prosperity, which was what Bulgaria had been just desperately missing for really decades. And while this prosperous period was going on, major events were ongoing for the Byzantines in even more faraway lands. So what you need to know is that now, after 1307, things are going pretty well for Bulgaria, but now we're going to switch over to Anatolia to get some updates there. So you'll recall that in the mid-13th century, the Mongols, which we eventually begin referring to as Tatars, uh, in Europe at least, really ravaged Bulgaria. But they also ravaged Anatolia and lands all over the place, but Anatolia for our purposes. And that included one of the places where these Mongols uh, caused a bunch of problems was in Central Asia, which was the home to many of these very large Turkic tribes like the Seljuks, which you'll recall, they were a very big force in Anatolia. They caused a lot of problems with the Byzantines. The Bulgarians work with them sometimes. So the reason why the Seljuks really came in there was the Mongols putting pressure on them in Central Asia. Well, this instability in Central Asia was ongoing, and it continued to do what instability does, uh, and kind of caused a stirring in, remember before we've talked about, the plains and just broadly the Central Asian region as being uh, the so-called womb of nations, right? This place that these huge horse tribes of various types just seem to spring out of and cause devastation and chaos in the, you know, kind of quote-unquote civilized world. And here we are again. The Mongols managed to push a huge semi-nomadic people out of the, this, uh, this Central Asian area, and it was another group of Turks. They came down into Anatolia, fleeing the Mongols, and they began to mix with the Turks who were already living there and been there for decades. And this is all while the Latin Empire still existed, so obviously the Byzantine successor states in Anatolia were a little bit distracted by trying to retake Constantinople, while these Turks were slowly increasing their power in Anatolia. Once Constantinople was recovered in 1261, focus really shifted to Europe, over decades, the condition of the eastern defenses in Anatolia just steadily, steadily declines as the Byzantine Empire focuses on the west and ignores the east. During this time, one of the tribes pledged itself to what remained of the Seljuks and took control of a small piece of territory near the city of Nicaea. In 1280, the leader of the tribe died and his son took control. The son of this small Turkic tribe based around Nicaea was a man named Osman. Now, this man, Osman, to, to put it briefly, I mean, he's going to found one of the longest dynasties in world history, an empire that will span three continents and which will ultimately define Bulgarian history as much as the Byzantines have. But for now, 
he's found himself in control of a tiny little sliver of territory in Anatolia. In 1302, at the same time the Byzantines were launching their invasion of Bulgaria to put uh, Michael Asen II on the throne, they were also launching an assault on Osman to try to kind of crush his growing power. He had laid, laid siege to Nicaea the year before, leading the Byzantines to finally get serious about the threat that Osman and his followers pay, uh, kind of played. So a small force was sent to re relieve Nicaea, but they were crushed by Osman and his cavalry in the Battle of Bafeus. That victory solidified Osman's position, making it crystal clear that he was there to stay. Over the next few years, Byzantine Christian peasants, one after another, left the Anatolian countryside, fleeing to Europe or to fortresses in the area, the last remaining areas of Byzantine control in Anatolia. The point is that the Seljuks may have sort of ruled over Christian peasants that were ready to become Byzantine, uh, Byzantine subjects again. No, not always. These things are a bit more complicated than we like to think, but in general, probably. But that was beginning to change. Those Christian peasants were leaving, and they were being replaced by Turkic peasants. And this is a huge shift in Anatolia. And those fortresses that many of them fled to, well, they began to fall one by one as Osman steadily expanded his holdings, moving his borders towards the Aegean Sea and eventually taking Ephesus and actually cutting off the Byzantines from the rest of Anatolia by land. As I mentioned before, again, losing Anatolia was a massive blow to the Byzantines. These lands were critical in terms of taxes, in terms of food, in terms of soldiers. Constantinople could survive on its own, but the empire could never be what it was without Anatolia. Now, the Byzantines may have made peace with Bulgaria, we're back to 1307, but Serbia was now stronger than ever, allowing it to gradually take control of Byzantine territory in Macedonia. Within a few years, the empire controlled only parts of Thrace, most of Greece, a bit of Macedonia, and a sliver of land in Anatolia. Now, there's an admittedly crude map of this on the website, but you can take a look there to see in, you know, say the 1310s, what the Byzantine Empire looks like at that point, how small it is, how little land it really controls. Taking all this together, by this point, as John Fine described it, Byzantium, quote, differed from the other states in the Balkans only in prestige and pretensions, end quote. I like that quote, prestige and pretensions. So the point is that with the loss of Anatolia, with the expansion of these Turkic tribes, the Byzantines just aren't what they were. They're no longer the sort of de facto great power of the region. They're now about as strong as Bulgaria or Serbia. Uh, and that's a real shift in everything. I mean, the entire, you know, the, the many, many centuries we've covered in this podcast for almost all of those centuries, except for the time of the Latin Empire, really, Byzantium has always been this great force, always looming, always ready to strike, always at least partially a threat. But Byzantium is changing. In fact, the Byzantines today are facing similar problems to Bulgaria. Uniquely, tax revenue is slumping because more privileges are being granted to aristocrats, resulting in a greater tax burden on the peasants. More like Bulgaria, local magnates have more and more power, meaning less and less power from the central government and the emperor. To 
to prevent those local magnates from breaking away, regions are continuously granted to members of the royal family, which often results in more stability, but it also means more of a risk of civil war resulting from any intra-family squabbles, right? So essentially, if, if there's this bit of territory, I don't want a stranger running it because a stranger could turn against me, so I give it to my brother. Well, my brother is loyal to me, so this is all great. However, if at any point I get into a fight with my brother and my brother decides he could replace me as emperor, well, he has this territory he controls, right? So there are advantages and disadvantages to this strategy. And yes, it reduces the likelihood of territories breaking away, but it definitely increases the likelihood of a disastrous civil war. All of this resulted in the Byzantines just, again, not having men for native armies or the taxes to effectively pay mercenaries. So I mentioned, you know, they're being forced to take mercenaries, but because of these increasing tax breaks given to elites, they don't have enough money to pay them. And the Catalans showed us that. They couldn't pay them, and the Catalans basically rebelled. And so, you know, it's like the only thing worse than having to rely on mercenaries is having to rely on mercenaries that you can't pay. But just as all these problems were befalling the Byzantines, the West was making its own trouble. Far away in the West, a man by the name of Charles of Valois, a man of impeccable lineage, the son of Philip III of France and Isabella of Aragon, who is described on Wikipedia, and I know I'm quoting Wikipedia here, but it's just such a great description. They describe Charles of Valois as, quote, moderately intelligent, disproportionately ambitious, and quite greedy. Again, just, it's a beautiful quote. I can't resist. So this man marries one of the descendants of Baldwin II, who you'll recall was one of the last Latin emperors. By doing this, he positioned himself with a claim on the non-existent Latin Empire. In other words, he positioned himself to claim what remained of Byzantium. So he began acquiring allies to back his bid to restore the Latin Empire. Over several years, he acquired the backing of Venice and Serbia, crucial allies which could in theory provide him with the land and the sea forces necessary to take Constantinople and reestablish the Latin Empire. He even got the Pope and the Catalans, those pesky Catalans, on his side as well. So by 1308, Charles had an army, he had allies, he was ready to mount an attack. I'm going to quote John Fine again here. Quote, In 1308, Charles landed in western Greece, but the Catalans almost immediately deserted him to go off plundering on their own. They lived off the land for a year, then entered the service of the Duke of Athens, served him for about a year, and then, defeating him in battle, seized control of Athens and established a duchy under their own control, lasting from 1311 to 1388. End quote. Okay, honestly, that just made me laugh. Just everything about it. First, Charles marries this woman, spends years gathering allies, getting ready to reestablish the Latin Empire. He's got all these plans. And then almost immediately after he lands in the Balkans, it all collapses. Then, to make matters worse, his wife dies in 1309. And just like that, his claim to the Latin throne is poof, gone. He, they never had any children, so that whole project was a waste. Also, just again, the point that it just really seems at this point in history, you cannot trust Catalan mercenaries. They are a rascally bunch. But what all this means is that the Byzantines are safe for now. The Duchy of Athens, which I just mentioned got taken over, it was one of the last remaining Latin kingdoms, and now it still exists, but it's run by some Catalan mercenaries. 
Maybe that's good for the Byzantines, maybe not. Only time will tell. Back in Bulgaria, people were actually really enjoying some peaceful years. Around this period, Tsar Theodor reasserted control over Vidin and the Banat of Severin. Uh, again, you can see where those places are on the map, but Vidin is now northwestern Bulgaria. The Banat of Severin is now in what's, well, what's now Romania. So this marks a further expansion of central control over outlying provinces, uh, which had either had their own independence or had been taken by a hostile power. So again, Theodore's doing pretty well. Also around this time, Osman and his followers are making even more progress in Anatolia. In 1317, they did something they had never done before. They attempted to take a proper city slash fortress. They had no experience with siege equipment or the process of using it, but what they did have was manpower. And they managed to lay siege to Prusa, which is now called Bursa in Anatolia. If they could take that city, it would mark a huge shift from them being a semi-nomadic Turkic people arriving from Central Asia as refugees fleeing the Mongols to a proper small state in control of a formidable fortress city. But without siege experience, well, progress is going to be slow. Then, as if things weren't going badly enough for the Byzantines, in 1320, Andronicus III, who was the son of Michael IX and grandson of Andronicus II, Remember, uh, Michael IX and Andronicus II, father and son, co-emperors, so the grandson slash son of them. Anyways, Andronicus III kills his brother in an accident. Some fight over a girl. Uh, I couldn't find any like super specific details about it. But the grief of seeing one of his sons kill his other son apparently led to Michael IX dying unexpectedly of grief at age 43. Now, maybe he didn't die of grief, but it seems like he died of natural causes one way or another. So, this very quickly placed Andronicus III as the next co-emperor and heir to the throne. But, because of the murder of his brother and because of frustrations with his behavior, his grandfather, the emperor, saw him as being extremely arrogant and just didn't like his style. His grandfather decided that he was not having it. He was not going to allow Andronicus III to really take power. So, quick warning here, I've also read that Michael IX just happened to die coincidentally and that Andronicus III did become co-emperor but made enemies with his grandfather. There's a couple versions of the story, but this is the one I'm going with. But the point is, as a result of all of this, Emperor Andronicus III is disowned. Or sorry, Andronicus II disowns his grandson, Andronicus III. Uh, I'm going to just kind of refer to them as the older and the younger. It's a bit more simple. So the older one disowns his grandson, the younger one, refusing to consider him as his heir. The boy fled Constantinople to go Adrianople and rallied his supporters, particularly the discontented landowners in that region, and particularly younger ones. The younger nobility supported him. They wanted new blood at the top, and they thought Andronicus II could bring about uh, big tax breaks and would make everything great for them. So as pretenders to the throne or as people trying to get power in the Byzantine Empire generally do, Andronicus II promised everyone all kinds of tax breaks. Then, to secure his own support, Andronicus II, the older one, had to make his own promises. Thus, this entire little budding civil war immediately weakens the central Byzantine government because everyone is making promises to keep the support of their supporters. Within a year, one of the younger Andronicus's generals led an army to Constantinople, bringing about the signing of a peace treaty to avoid a siege. 
That treaty divided rule between the grandfather and the grandson, with the younger Andronicus more or less running things in Europe, and the older one running things in Constantinople and what was left in Asia. Now, during this brief war, the Bulgarians had provided some assistance to the older Andronicus, allowing the Tatars to raid Byzantine Thrace, which was controlled by the younger one, twice. But clearly this Bulgarian uh, influence wasn't enough to have a big impact on anything. But just so you know. But with this civil war over, a year later, it starts again. The conflict resumes over the kind of, I guess you could say the inherent awkwardness of having two more or less independently controlled uh, Byzantine sub-states um, with independent foreign policies. But also what triggered it was a high-level defection from the camp of the young Andronicus. And so the war resumed. The younger Andronicus made more gains in Thrace, but just as this was happening, Tsar Theodor Svetoslav died unexpectedly after honestly a surprisingly successful 22-year reign and was succeeded by his son George Tartar II. So Byzantine civil wars restarted and we now have a new emperor or a new Tsar in Turnbull. Now this new Tsar wanted to take advantage of the war obviously it's a great opportunity and so he advances into Thrace himself and manages to take Philippopolis before advancing on Andronicus III's capital of Adrianople. There, however, he's defeated by the younger Andronicus and forced to, to, to turn back. At the end of the year, peace resumes under basically the same peace agreement that existed at the end of the last kind of iteration of the Civil War. That defector, who had kind of started all this, well, yeah, he, he was in a tricky position, and so he decided to play his hand and assassinate the emperor, but he was foiled, and so he's dead. Oops. Probably all this wasn't a good idea for him. But this is also the end of George Turter II, that guy I mentioned for the first time like 20 seconds ago. He managed to die suddenly of what we assume are natural causes within a year of taking the throne. And so just like that, we went from having Theodor Svetoslav, a pretty successful strong Tsar, to his son, who seems fine, probably would have been a great Tsar, to all of a sudden a succession crisis, just like that. So Bulgaria has now found itself unexpectedly enjoying more than two decades of relative peace and prosperity, and now all that is a danger of ending, and a civil war could potentially break out. Now, fortunately, the Bulgarian nobility decided to elect a candidate they felt they could all support. You see, for the past several decades, the Shishmani, a noble family of Cumans who had come to Bulgaria a half-century earlier and forged a semi-independent state around Vidin, well, they were the logical choice. The current despot in Vidin was a man named Michael Asen III, more commonly just known as Michael Shishman. Now you see, Michael Shishman was the grandson of Ivan Asen II, making him actually a distant cousin of the recently departed George Turter II, and, you know, somewhat connected to the Asen dynasty, even though we refer to his dynasty as the Shishmani. That family connection combined with the power and influence of his family in Turnerville, managed to get him the throne. And it was a lucky break for everyone. As I just mentioned, it really avoided what could have been a civil war and a succession crisis. But it seems like it was enough for that opportunity to take advantage of the Byzantine civil war to pass. So now, as the Byzantine civil war calms down, but with tensions that are still high between the grandfather and the grandson, we have a new dynasty taking control in Turnerville. And so, it's time to wait to see where things will turn. 
But as all this is happening, not so far away in Anatolia, that siege of Bursa by the followers of Osman, it's still going on. And right around the time Shishman takes the throne, Osman finally dies. Now of all the characters in the drama of this episode, it is he, little noticed, little taken into consideration, far away from all the main action of the civil wars, the dynastic struggles, it is Osman who is going to have the greatest impact. Because while the story was invented by later generations, it's not a real story, There, it is still prescient. Later, Ottoman historians said that Osman had a dream before he died. And in it, quote, He saw that a moon arose from the holy man's breast and came to sink in his own breast. A tree then sprouted from his navel, and its shade compassed the world. Beneath the shade there were mountains, and streams flowed forth from the foot of each mountain. Some people drank from these running waters, others watered gardens, while yet others caused fountains to flow. When Osman awoke, he told the story to the holy man, who said, Osman, my son, congratulations, for God has given you the imperial office, and to you and your descendants, and my daughter, Mahun, shall be your wife. End quote. Essentially, what Osman dreamed is that his descendants would grow into a great tree encompassing an empire that would shade the world. Soon after the death of Osman, his followers took Bursa and made it their new capital. Osman was buried there, where he remains today. I'll upload a photo that I took several years ago at his grave in Bursa. With his death, we'll now start referring to his followers as the Osmanli, or as we say in English, the Ottomans. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. And yeah, check us out on iTunes, Facebook, all the places you know. Uh, and that's about it for today. So, uspech, or in English, good luck.